I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. I'm here speaking with Dr. Hal Friedman, editor of War in the American Pacific and East Asia, 1941-1972. to Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, Thanks for having me on the the program. So first, uh, tell me, how did you... uh, get into studying this subject and uh, writing on it and editing books on it? Well, uh, this is the first book I've edited, uh, but I do have two trilogies on the U.S. and the Pacific in roughly the mid-1940s. I really got into it because of my father. Uh, My father was a parachute infantryman in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II, and he fought in both uh, Leyte and Luzon. Um, even even taking part in the Battle of Manila. If anybody doesn't realize, Manila was the second most destroyed city in the world um, in World War II. And uh, most of his his accounts of the service, as was typical for World War II combat veterans, were put to my brother and I as jokes. I mean, he turned everything into a sort of humorous uh, instance until later when when we would talk and. Um, learned more about what he what he did and what he had to go through. And um, he was an avid history reader. Uh, in fact, I was shocked to find out one time he told me that if he'd had the opportunity, he would have gone to college and become a high school history teacher, uh, which I suppose is part of the reason I got a Ph.D. and became a college history professor. And his Pacific War experiences got me right reading about World War II at a very early age, about seven or eight. Mm-hmm. I was headed to public libraries. And um, when I was in undergraduate school at Eastern Michigan, uh, one of my professors, uh, would, he and his wife would go scuba diving in Micronesia. And it was an area that I wanted to write about, so I went to graduate school at Michigan State and wrote an, uh, an MA thesis on the Navy in Micronesia in the mid-1940s, then a dissertation, then a book, then a trilogy, then a second trilogy. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, as an academic exercise, I wanted to edit a collection of essays. I'd just never done that. And I actually asked somebody who'd been an informal mentor of mine for about the last 25 years, should I do this? And he had just finished a nightmare project. Uh, edit- editing collections of essays can be real problems because you you lose authors and you have to recruit authors and replace them and it can really go on and on. And he basically told me to run fast and far in the other direction and I didn't listen to him. <laughs> so this was a 17-year project. I didn't advertise that very widely. Hmm. Uh, but I actually started thinking about this in 2002. I went to the Society for Environmental Historians annual meeting thinking, wouldn't it be neat to do a collection of essays that marked the 60th anniversary of Operation Crossroads, mm-hmm. the atomic bomb test on the warships. And the environmental historians weren't interested in it. Um, and so I started contacting colleagues that I knew through the Society for Military History and through the Northern Great Plains History Conference and started building up authors, but it was a real, it was a real back burner operation. I mean, it was not something I was putting a lot of time or attention into. Mm-hmm. Um, thought I had a publisher, about half of my authors were actually going to reprint their essays with permission from the original publishers. Turned out, you know, other publishers don't want that any longer, 
questions at her university press in Kentucky. Did you know anyone doing naval history? And, and Randy was writing the conclusion for me because I asked him to write the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'm working on something with other people that's not quite naval history. It's, it's really a multi-service, but it's about the Pacific in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Kentucky picked it up based on that cold call to Randy. Okay. Um, so where, where are you teaching right now? Uh, I'm associate chair and professor of modern history at Henry Ford College in Dearborn, Michigan. Okay. We're, we're on the uh, part of the former estate of Henry Ford. Okay. Uh, the college started in 1938 and uh, was in several different locations in the city of Dearborn. And then Henry Ford II gave us our current grounds in the 1950s um, from the from the original estate. Okay. Uh, and they're almost almost 24 years, really 24 years, about two months. So let's, uh, we'll talk uh, more about how the book uh, came together, but uh, okay. let, let's sure. talk about the subject matter and focus um, yeah. of it. Yeah, tell me about that. You said how many essays? Uh, there were uh, seven essays plus an introduction and conclusion. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do, and this tied in with Operation Crossroads, I had a chapter on American inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Navy over Operation Crossroads. And um, Operation Crossroads has been done quite a bit in historiography, but I was getting into more of the nitty-gritty, rather unprofessional squabbling that was going on between the two services over how to do the test. Hmm. And it got me thinking, uh, what are the new directions that um, historians have been taking with uh, historiography on the U.S. military in the Pacific in the 1940s? other aspects of the U.S. 
Pacific mm-hmm. uh, in the 1940s, or maybe even in other decades or other geographic regions. Uh, there's a lot to be done uh, in these various areas. Now, I know, um, so you've written your trilogy, I think, one, uh, Blue versus Purple was the title of one. Um, that, that was one book. Um, I, did, I did a trilogy on uh, U.S. national security policy toward the Pacific Basin from 45 to 47. Mm-hmm. And that, so those were three separate titles. Those all came from the thesis, the dissertation, and then the first book. Uh, in the second of those books, uh, I meant to do a chapter on the Naval War College. And mm-hmm. instead, when I got into the records of the Naval War College, I realized there was a book to be written about the Naval War College after World War II, mm-hmm. and then that turned into a trilogy as well. And the, that second trilogy is about the Naval War College transitioning from the Pacific War to the Cold War in the Pacific. And specifically, it's about um, dropping Japan as the primary hypothetical post-war enemy mm-hmm. and adapting the Soviet Union. And so how do you change how you're planning to fight? How do the war games change? Mm-hmm. Um, and with the Pacific, it's mainly refocusing things from the Central and South Pacific to the North Pacific, fairly obviously, given so, the Soviet Union. So I'm curious how this this book, this new one, um, yeah. does it build upon the stuff you discussed before? Or does it um, just, it, it's just uh, treading new ground? Yes. Yeah, it really builds on um, my first trilogy uh, because that was about um, the reason the reason the U.S. wanted to consolidate its control over the Pacific Islands it took from Japan during the war. And as I called the first book, Creating an American Lake, the U.S. really wanted to turn the Pacific Ocean to an American lake. Hmm. Old, old term used by Douglas MacArthur and then
somebody, Maddie had written something for somebody, and <laughs> the person had complained to Randy that his piece was too reflective. Um, apparently they were looking for more of a narrative. Yeah. And as soon as I, as soon as I heard that, I called Randy and I said, would you write a conclusion for me? Because I'd like a reflective conclusion for my, <laughs> uh, for my edit collection rather than a narrative. You know, you have these conclusions that just sort of repeat what the authors have said. I've never found that found that very useful right. for for readers. Why not have somebody who can pull something together? And I think what David and Randy did, in fact, is, is pull these essays together uh, because they are they are very different. They have the Pacific War uh, in common. They have the Pacific and the U.S. military in common. But uh, collections of essays in history almost always get critiqued with, "Oh, there's no focus to this." Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if any reviews have been done. So I, I don't know if that'll still be a criticism. Um, but that intro and the conclusion really went far, in my opinion, really creating a focus on new directions and on the Pacific for, for readers. Well, let me ask you a question about a sure. point you brought up. Um, very interesting point about that the U.S., you know, because people think of the U.S. as having become an international sort of peacekeeping force after World War II, whereas you just said, it was more about avoiding another Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So, yeah. I recall talking to another historian that after the Spanish-American War, the U.S. Navy, I think, became concerned about having to patrol an empire across the ocean. Yeah. And uh, and the U.S. seemed very, you know, it was pretty isol- isolationist to a degree before World War II. Yeah. Um, and then after World War II, it seemed to become a globalist. Um, yeah. So can you talk about how, again, the idea seemed to be that the U.S. was trying to keep peace, but you're saying it was basically trying to secure its borders, so, so to speak. Yeah, well, they're not really mutually. Was it, was it Scott Mobley you were talking to? Uh, possibly. I forget. Because he, he has a book out where he's arguing, a very good book, on, on uh, gilded age and progressive naval, progressive era naval officers who... Mm-hmm. Um, aren't just arguing for a fleet because they want a bigger fleet so they can get promoted. They see really serious threats from European navies uh, in places like the Pacific. I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite call the U.S. isolationist. I mean, there was certainly that was certainly a public mood, but I would say that the policy was probably more neutrality. Mm-hmm. And um, we had we had really been the dominant power in the Eastern Pacific since probably 1898. And and I, and I think so. I think up to 1945 or 1941, our our interventionism, if you will, was was building and getting more powerful. We were certainly we were certainly the global financial and economic power by 1919. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I mean, we had a navy that even gave the British a run for their money, even when it was reduced in the 1920s. But um, the navy, the navy got convinced by the Wilson administration allowing the Japanese to take over much of Micronesia, that there was a straight road from that to Pearl Harbor. And, and there really wasn't, but they were convinced there was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Japanese carrier that hit Pearl Harbor did not come from Micronesia, they came from the North Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese were not, were not fortifying their Micronesian bases until well after they pulled out of the League of Nations, about 1939, 40, 41. So, there really wasn't that much of a threat from these Micronesian islands, but, but the Navy was convinced, and, and frankly so was the Army, 
economy. And so when you are waging the war and when the war is coming to an end, uh, and, and I put it in the subtitle of my first book, I mean, I called this both U.S. imperialism and U.S. strategic security. For, for the Americans, turning the Pacific into an, uh, into an American lake is a defensive move. Um, maybe it borders with offensive defensive, uh, but, but I think that's still primarily a defensive mindset. Now, to everybody else in the Pacific, it was offensive as hell. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the, Europe, the Europeans at times called this U.S. imperialism and, and a land grab. And the, the U.S. would kind of deny that because the control over the islands was through a U.N. trusteeship, but it was also a special kind of trusteeship called strategic that the U.S. insisted on having over the Pacific Islands that nobody else had over their territories. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the intention here is we want to make sure the U.S. has a preponderance of power in the Pacific and nobody else can challenge us. Mm-hmm. Um, and very often the Americans, both political officials and uh, JCS, were sort of continually referencing um, the phrase resurgence of hand or any other power. Mm-hmm. And that's because right after the war, the JCS really was convinced that the U.S. occupation of Japan would only last about three to five years. Japan would then either rebuild and be a threat again, or it would be quote-unquote neutralized and communized. And mm-hmm. so the any other power is not just reference to the Soviet Union. Um, and so this is, this is very defensive to the Americans because, yeah, they're, they're reliving Pearl Harbor in 45 and 46 and 47 because Truman's cutting the defense budget really, really seriously. I mean, he's, God, God love him, he's trying to deal with the national debt. Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, and, and at the end of the war, 80% of the U.S. federal budget is defense. So, he cut that back to about 25% of the budget in 1947, and then basically gut the military. And so people like Dwight Eisenhower, his Army Chief of Staff, uh, Esther Nimitz, his Chief of Naval Operations, you know, they're, they're reliving 1940-41, where the U.S. now has even more foreign policy responsibilities. And it's, it's a bigger military than they had in 40-41, but it looks like it's being turned into a sort of skeleton. So they are, they are very fearful. Uh, I would even maybe argue paranoid, uh, about things. Uh, they are very scared and defensive. In 1946, Congress was investigating Pearl Harbor again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's the strategic security part. Uh, but again, if you, <laughs> if you put air and naval forces on all these bases and you protect mobile American naval and air power toward East Asia, um, the Soviet Union is going to clearly see it as a threat yeah. because they're even more paranoid than the U.S. in that time period. Did, um, does the book uh, address the threat of nuclear war that rose up in, I guess, about 1950 and how the U.S. Navy um, was involved in that, that theoretical conflict? The only, the only other one that really gets at that is um, my essay on Operation Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is Nuclear information was so tightly held that even even generals and admirals very often couldn't get information on it. I mean, 
of some. Uh, we were obviously basing atomic weapons as the primary aspect to our, our defense. Um, so I'm sure that commands could get more information on that. Um, but as David Rosenberg has shown, there weren't even a lot of nuclear weapons by 1950. Um, I forget the number, but it was, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the two or three hundred that the Air Force thought they needed to, to really blitz the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Navy was just, by 1950, they were just really sort of getting at what size of a carrier do we need to launch aircraft that could carry atomic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the carrier had been canceled by, by Truman's Secretary of Defense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's why one historian calls the Atomic Shield, a hollow threat. I mean, that was the title to his book. Hmm. Uh, because it, even, even SAC wasn't all that well-funded or equipped. Um, Truman, Truman was, I think, convinced by George Marshall and George Kennan that Stalin was not going to start a, a war, which I think was accurate. Hmm. And so I think he was kind of gambling or basing that, using that information to cut the budget because he really was serious about, about fiscal conservancy. of European colonialism uh, affect um, U.S. military policy in East Asia? Obviously, had, you know, there's, it's a big component, but yeah. how does your essay collection deal with it or address it? Um, yeah, not so much the, these essays. Uh, my other work does. It, it informs it, uh, but, but at the same time, it's the foil. Um, the U.S. could argue that it was not a colonial power Mm-hmm. 
it's a pretty significant chunk mm-hmm. that, that the U.S. is saying, hey, we're running this. We get to fortify these islands however we want. We get to face forces there however we want. Oh, and by the way, um, you're not, you're not going to pay visits to these islands. Um, hmm. there, there's even a policy of basically um, getting foreigners off of these islands. Uh, James Forstall at one point says uh, in, a, in a debate about this, and it, and it closed doors behind, behind the scenes debate, um, because the, the U.S. commercial company is talking about, well, should we let foreigners set up businesses in Micronesia? And Forstall says, uh, I don't want uh, a foreign a foreigner to set up even a peanut stand uh, <laughs> in the side of one of our bases. Hmm. There's, there's just, you know, if you're going to set up businesses in Micronesia, they're going to be American businesses because we can control them, we can check them out. Um, the Navy even uh, ejects. Uh, there are some Italian, Spanish, and German Catholic missionaries Hmm. on some of the Micronesian islands, they are deported. Hmm. Uh, and, it, and it goes it goes right up to the State War Navy Coordinating Committee, and so it becomes policy. Yeah, we're rejecting them. And uh, of all people, Francis Colonel Spellman contacts Truman and says, oh my God, if you if you get rid of the Catholic missionaries, you know, the, the Micronesians will return to their heathenist ways. Hmm. And um, Truman says, well, that's fine. We'll replace the Catholic uh, missionaries with American, the European Catholic missionaries with American Catholic missionaries. Yeah. Um, and and it's not it's not to proselytize the natives. That's not the military's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, Admiral John Towers, who's think back for part of this period after the war, has a number of these American missionaries in his in his office. And in the diary entry, you can you can see Towers sort of pointing his fingers at them and saying, "You're not you're not on that island to do narrow evangelical work. You're there to turn these people into good Americans, to couple the islands more strongly to the Panama United States." So that's that's a very to me that's a very defensive military. You know, there are threats out there. This place is part of our shield. Right. And we want to make sure nothing goes wrong there. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah, it, imperialism is in the eye of the beholder, right? And that's what I teach my students. If, if you're the person doing it, you don't think you are. If you're the person suffering it, you're convinced you are. It is. Whether it is or isn't, right? Um, I mean, that's just sort of the... That's why in the in the subtitle of the first book, I use both phrases imperialism and strategic security because it depends on your perspective and who you are mm-hmm. and how you're looking at all of this as to what it is. Well, so I think colonialism includes not only cultural appropriation, but also um, and conversion, but also uh, an ex- exploitation, and I mean that in sort yeah. of a neutral way of yeah. uh, material yeah. resources and labor resources. And it sounds like the U.S. was more. I'm sure there was uh, economic exploitation um, to some yeah. extent, but it seems like the goal was more simply turning it into a, like you say, an American shield. A shield, yeah. Yeah, the economics was, um, and, and I think, I think, um, historians of imperialism probably put a, put a broader cast on it. But the economics isn't really exploitation, it's, let's see if we can develop these islands so they pay for themselves. Hmm. We, we don't, we don't want the island populations 
and things like the island infrastructure to be running under the military budget. I mean, the bases, sure, that's going to come out of the military budgets. But you don't want to have the Navy have to, or the Army have to subsidize the civilian population. If we can get them to to be productive and, and pay for themselves, great. Um, and, and by the way, if you can make them materially prosperous in an American style, that couples them even more into an American culture. Um, and so there's there's that strain of thinking too. That they would not only pay for themselves, you're going to make them more American. Um, and uh, you know you get you get some military officers who are writing about Micronesia, and they think, ah, oh, you know, we can really develop this place. And it'll become it'll become a you know windfall of profits for copper production or phosphate production and things like that. But I think I think with the JCS and the and the cabinet officials, it's more like, well, let's let's just try to do this to a point where it's not too much of a drag on the budget. And Spruins, um, again, was was the person when he was think tank fleet was sort of put of the warning. He had this one statement that I that I first took to be really paternalistic and even racist, but the, one of my advisors in graduate school had me look at it again and it really isn't. Uh, they're, they're debating about what to do with the Micronesians, and Spruin says, uh, let's make sure we're not putting undershirts on native bells who aren't used to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as a young graduate student, oh my God, I mean, what, a, what a remark to make. But one of my advisors looked at it and he said, are you sure Spruin isn't just warning his subordinates and his superiors, let's not screw this up? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Look at the problems we've had, you know, trying to trying to change the Filipinos and trying to change the Cubans and trying to change the, the, the you know, Eskimos and the Hawaiians, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a little recognition of that too. Um, although I think Spruance's attitude is really a minority one. I mean, I think most of it. Sure, let's develop the island and see if we can get these folks to to quote unquote support themselves. So it sounds like he might be saying, let them keep their culture. Yeah. You know, where it doesn't, like, conflict with our needs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's not try to socially engineer these people into something that we want them to look like. Mm-hmm. Rather than... And that, that might have actually been a criticism of the Interior Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, talk, talk about Imperial. Uh, Harold Dickey's in the Interior Department were arguing that they should run the islands because they did such a good job with the Eskimos mm-hmm. and the American Indians and the Filipinos. Right. You know, the whole list of sort of social disasters uh, that the BIA and the Interior Department create, uh, along with others, and uh, the the Army and the Navy are completely against that because they think that civilian administration is going to too much detract from the obvious military function of these island bases, mm-hmm. uh, and and of course part of it also is the Army. The Army and the Navy are just as arrogant, saying, "Oh no, you know, you 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 guys at Interior, you're you know, you're kind of lefty, you're a little kinko, you don't know what you're doing, but we really know how to, you know, run civilian operations and, and mm-hmm. govern populations." So there was there was plenty of that. Spruance's statement might have been, you know, warning to all kinds of people mm-hmm. uh, throughout the executive branch of, you know, let's not to be too arrogant in our ignorance um, and and screw this. They were in their own way self-supporting in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. at least until the Japanese took them over. And 
I, ne- I never imagined that the Department of Interior could have had such such a strong influence on inter- our U.S. security. But these examples are really uh, yeah. enlightening, eye-opening. Well, I, I think, in fact, they didn't, because I think, in fact, the Army and the Navy prevented them from, from doing it. I mean, they did. Ah. The Interior did eventually run the islands, hmm. but not after about five or six years. But there's this, there's this wonderful letter. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there's this sure. wonderful yeah. letter from Harold Hickey to Harry Truman in September 1945, I think it is. And if you're not aware, Truman and Nicky just hated each other's guts. I mean, they just couldn't stand each other. Nicky's hmm. was going to leave office real soon after that. But um, Nicky's, it's about a page and a half letter, and Nicky's is telling Truman why Interior should run these islands. And he goes through the, the, the litany, you know, what I just mentioned. Hmm. And then at the end he says, the Interior Department is the federal agency that is most suited to bring Jeffersonian democracy and capitalism to the natives. Huh. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm in the Truman Library, and I'm looking at this, and I had to do a double take on the date. Is this a, is this 1945 or 1845? Right. Yeah. Oh my! You know, 100 years later, this manifest destiny. And from supposedly, yeah. right? Supposedly, the the you know the sort of leftist, softy, pinko Harold Dickies. Oh no! I mean, Harold. I mean, yeah, Harold. Even Harold Dickies has a notion of post-war American defense in the region. Yeah. Interesting. So I think Pearl Harbor affected everybody. I mean, yeah. I mean, I really do. I, I don't. I don't think it left anybody um, unchanged. Hmm. Fairly, you know, fairly easily explained. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know Pearl Harbor, just watch Tora Tora Tora. Yeah, I think. Give you a pretty good picture of it. I think it's it's been seventy, almost seventy eight years now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think people are forgetting sort of the impact. You know, people, I think even 9-11 is being forgotten as far as, like, the impact for for younger people, you know, the the cultural impact. Yeah, well, yeah. um, I bet it's still, I bet both events are still there for policymakers. Even even uninformed policymakers. Even policymakers who think they know what what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I, I bet are still acting with Pearl Harbor and and 9-11, certainly 9-11, but, but I would argue even Pearl Harbor. Um, if you look at, you know, I guess we could argue it's the product of the global war on terrorism, but if you look at the fact that we have 800, what is it, 800 overseas military installations, something like that, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure. that, I don't think that's just 9-11. I mean, I, I really do think that goes back to 1941 mm-hmm. and, and this fear. So I think, I think someone could be ignorant of Pearl Harbor, even if they were in political power, ignorant of Pearl but still pushed by it, mm-hmm. or guided by it, or dominated by it. Can't prove it, because I don't, I'm not privy to anything internal these days, but right. I, I'd be really surprised if, if Pearl Harbor still isn't there. Um, I mean, it's, it's there with me. I'm supposed to be moderate about all these things. I'm supposed to be uh, unemotional about all these things. I, I have a great, great fear. Uh, that uh, China's pushing us out of East Asia and the Western Pacific. Mm-hmm. And, and that they are, the, you know, the, the first and second line, I think, are realities for the Politburo. And um, and while I can recognize that the U.S. abused its power at times in East Asia, mm-hmm. uh, made huge mistakes, did really stupid things, um, I can just imagine... 
Yeah. Hmm. You know. So. Or the struggle for the American lake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose we are in a struggle phase, but I, I am not. I'm not confident about the future about us competing with China because um, we just haven't kept our economy uh, as the central aspect of our strength, and it was in 1945 to 46. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, even though Trump was cutting the budget and so on and so forth. You know, we had a, we had a gangbusters economy. I mean, we were producing half the world's goods mm-hmm. uh, in 1945, mainly because of wartime destruction. But um, you know, if if, there, if we're in a new cold war now, and I think we are, uh, we're in a we're in such a weakened position uh, compared to 1945. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyway, so, that's just me. So, so just back to the book. Are there any? Yeah, uh, sorry. No, no problem. Are there any other? Uh, important secondary issues discussed in the book that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to mention? Um, I would say it's what uh, the history profession is now calling the cultural turn. Hmm. And several of the essays touch on that. I mean, I mean all of them to some extent, but institutional culture, food ways, popular culture, uh, the military and the media. These are, these are all relatively new areas. They're, they're not even really that entirely developed areas of historiography in general. Um, but I think military historians came to the cultural turn and cultural studies a little later than other groups for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and so I think the, the collection of essays speaks to that. I mean, where does, where does cultural studies fit in uh, to, uh, uh, in this case, American military historiography. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at the Society for Military History, you look at our programs from the last few years, you can see that a lot. I mean, where we're historians are looking at cultural studies, uh, gender studies, um, uh, social history, and, and they're trying to use those methodologies to look at problems of war, and I think, I hope, this collection speaks to that, and it, and it causes other people to get into some of these aspects of American military history that haven't been explored yet, and there's a, there's a ton of work to do in, in that area. Yeah, even, even in some fairly traditional areas, I mean, the military's relations with the media is a fairly traditional kind of topic, but when you're both at cultural studies, right, what are the different perspectives and how this is impacting things? I'd say I hope that's the focus that people came from it. The Pacific itself, I think, is an understudied, uh, understudied geographic region. Hmm. Um, uh, and it certainly, it certainly was during the Cold War. Uh, I mean, if, uh, there were times where if, if you weren't working on something vis-a-vis the Atlantic and Europe, your your publications, I just don't think, were taken as seriously. In, sp- in spite of the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Um, and today, in spite of Obama's attempt at the pivot to the Pacific, which kind of fizzled, mm-hmm. and in spite of the really clear rise of China, first as an industrial and now as a military power, now it's really a territorial imperialist power, uh, with a new kind of imperialism, right? I mean, this maritime, uh, let's create artificial reefs and call it our territory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of is as much of a focus, because the focus right now is on the Middle East. So to turn uh, towards um, 
how the book was put together. We we already discussed some of that. Um, yeah. So what are some of the uh, main resources you used for your own research and also maybe to check, you know, just fact check on or whatever checking you did on the other essays? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do a lot of fact checking. Um, I mean, if there was something I didn't understand, I just asked because I, I know these authors and I, collection as you were editing all of the essays um what was the most surprising thing you felt you discovered in reading and editing all of these Okay. Um, that, is, that is an old axe of mine to grind. I mean, I 
fair enough. Yeah. Um, so you talked, um, you've already talked about some of the difficulties in getting this book published, you know, the timeline yeah. and everything. Um, are there any other issues or, or, um, once no. it came together, was it, it, it went well? Just for, for, for anybody who's going to do it, um, just realize the time it might take, that, that it is difficult to recruit authors, um, unless, unless maybe it's something that's really, really, really timely. Um, and, and that it is, it is going to take a long time if it's a back burner project. If it's not, you know, if it's not something you're working on full time, but if it's just something you're working on here and there, um, it takes a long time. And the longer the time goes on, the greater problem you have with losing authors. You know, things come up, people get sick, people retire, people, you know, have family members to take care of or something like that. And so they drop out and, and then you have to go find someone else. And that's difficult at times. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of people working in the U.S. military in the Pacific in the 1940s. Hmm. So, or, or there may not be a lot of people you know about because of, again, the way the profession is structured. And so that's difficult. And um, I, I have a colleague at U of M, um, and he's, oh, my God, he's done, uh, I think he's done now with it. Uh, he's done five or six edited volumes in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Now it's on environmental history, which is really hot right now. So mm-hmm. you can find people doing it. Um, but he's completely burned out from it now and said, okay, this is my last one. I'm done with it. So where's the where's the convention? This convention, it's in Washington. Yeah, I for, I forgot the location. Um, and it's. And-
And what's the full name of this convention? What does it stand for? Uh, annual Convention of the Association of the United States Army. Okay. Um, and that's, and that's a, I don't know a lot about AUSA, but I get the impression that it's a, a sort of army version of Wounded Warriors, that it's, that it's um, a private organization that assists army members and army veterans with various kinds of things. Uh, but, hmm. but they also publish and review military history. Oh, I see. Okay. So I'm not the only author. There's, a, there's about ten of us in two different sessions uh, that are presenting this short ten-minute, you know, uh, snapshots of our books, um, and then and then uh, questions from the audience. Which hopefully the audience really isn't thirty thousand people, but all <laughs> of the convention would have thirty thousand people at it. Yeah. Huh. So hopefully they won't all be there staring at me. Yeah. So you alluded, or you might have mentioned your next writing project. What's or what, what's your next project? Next project is an, a, a history of OPNAV plans for the defense of the post-war Pacific. So the the Naval War College trilogy was sort of a, a real. It was, it was a nice distraction, but it wasn't something I originally planned to do back in the nineties. And the first trilogy was a multi-departmental study of U.S. policy. So I looked at the Army, the Navy, the State Department, the Interior Department. The Office of the Presidency. This is a specific study of OPDAB from 45 to 47, and how do they plan to defend and, and run, administer the Pacific, uh, their bases, if the U.S. can get into a war with the Soviet Union? And I'm hoping to follow it up later on with a history of the major Pacific Command, but exactly what were their plans for fighting World War Three in the Pacific, fighting against the Soviet Union? Where can people find your work online? Do you have uh, on a website, or, or where, where can they find you? Oh, I would imagine University of Kentucky's website. I don't, I don't have a blog or a personal website. So, 
that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Just that, you know, I hope that, I hope the book sparks some interest in the Pacific and, and in American military history, and, and not just amongst, well, I hope it sparks some interest amongst academics <laughs> who don't want to study military history, mm-hmm. um, and, and who have a sort of ideological bent against studying military history, unfortunately. Um, but, but the general public, you know, the reading public is always there to welcome. And when I, when I do public service lectures, and I've done those at libraries and things like that, those are, those are some of the best people I've ever presented to, um, mm-hmm. in terms of being interested, having questions. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's usually a 50 and up crowd. Young people just don't seem to be too interested in mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which means I must have been a real, a real weirdo walking <laughs> to Trenton Public Library when I was 10 to be, for it. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar and on Twitter at WarScholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.